I'm happy to uh, inter introduce uh, tonight's moderator, uh, Mr. Stuart Silverstein. Stuart Silverstein was with the Los Angeles Times for over 20 years. He served as deputy political editor of the National Desk, night rewrite reporter, and higher education reporter of the Metro section, among many other assignments. Prior to that, he was with the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. Is that what the proper name is? The Atlanta Journal and Constitution. Except they say it with the Southern draw. Uh, right. <laughs> After my bad joke, I'm not going to go for that. <laughs> the, D the Dallas Times Herald and the Buffalo Courier Express. He was part of the 1993 Pulitzer Prize winning team that covered the Los Angeles riots. As of January, he is the Director of Public Affairs to Build LACC, the Los Angeles Community College District's Sustainable Building and Modernization Program. Stewart received his BA in History from SUNY Buffalo and his Master's in Journalism from Northwestern University. Please join me in welcoming uh, a, a friend of Sokolo, Stuart Silverstein. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for the wonderful introduction, Greg. Um, and it, it's wonderful to be here. I'm a, I'm a regular attendee of Zocalo events, so it's, so it's nice to be able to participate this time, and I appreciate everyone being here, so, so welcome here. We really appreciate your being here. Um, the, uh, as for tonight's topic, well, first of all, we all know that wealth almost always gives people a, a leg up in, in, in this world, but perhaps nothing more vividly il illustrates the advantage that comes to having wealth than the competitive derby we have nowadays with involving teenagers trying to get into elite schools. Um, you know, being rich means you often have the opportunity to go to better grade school, a better high school. In, in a recent uh, piece, New York Times uh, columnist Nick Kristoff uh, wrote, quote, one of the greatest injustices that America's best, one of the greatest injustices is that America's best teachers overwhelmingly teach America's most privileged students. In contrast, the most disadvantaged students invariably get the least effective teachers. Um, but it's not just a matter of the quality of the schools that so often low-income kids go to versus the schools that uh, kids from affluent uh, homes get to go to. Think of the uh, SAT. Um, having wealth means you probably get some good coaching before you, or, or at least you have access to good coaching before you take the SAT. And if you don't do well, you have money to retake that test again. So another form of advantage that's, that, that can be built in. Um, money sometimes can even help a student get directly into a, a, a top-notch school. Uh, think about what happens when there's a waiting list. You know, by the, now, not all schools, but, but some excellent schools, by the time they look at the waiting list, list students, they've used up most or all of their financial aid money. So who are they going to admit? They're going to admit the, the student who can pay his or her full way, not someone who's going to require aid. And in fact, in some cases, even in the regular admissions process, that enters the picture. Uh, and it, an admissions uh, official at Holy Cross College recently told the Boston Globe, quote, you need the paying customers, in other words, the students who can pay the full fare. In that same story, an East Coast College president uh, referred to the current recession and, and put the situation this, this way. There has never been a better time to be a smart, rich kid. And at some schools, you don't have to be as smart as you did before. So. Clearly, um, and, and we, can, uh, we, we can argue this point, and, and maybe some of the premise I just laid out is not fully on target, but, but, but clearly wealth plays a big role in this competitive derby to get into the top schools. 
we're lucky to have a, a wonderful group of panelists here to uh, discuss this issue. Uh, immediately uh, to my left is uh, Kelly Kendall. He's president of the Board of Trustees of the Los Angeles Community College District. He's been on the board for 12 years and is a close observer of all sorts of educational trends. And I have to look past him now to see who, <laughs> Scott, to his left is Scott Jasek. Uh, Scott's another important voice in the higher education field. He's currently the editor of Inside Higher Ed, uh, an online publication that covers uh, the, the education field. Before that, he was editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education. And uh, to Scott's left is Pat McDonough. She's a uh, professor at UCLA who studies higher education issues. She's also author of Choosing Colleges, How Social Class and Schools Structure Opportunity. And uh, finally, at, at the far left is uh, Bruce Pock. He's uh, a vice president and dean of admissions at Pomona College, also an important voice in uh, higher education and uh, someone who's widely quoted uh, on uh, admissions and other higher education issues. Um, now, you know, our topic tonight is, is higher education only for the rich. But just to play contrarian for a moment, let's sort of turn that point on its head. I mean, if, if now we're in a situation where, well, I, I just laid it out a few moments ago as, as, as how I see it. But if you go back pre-World War II, uh, who went to college? Very, very few people. Um, I was wondering, uh, Pat, if you could provide uh, sort of a three-minute uh, overview of, of the history of uh, what got us to this place, what, what took us uh, to a, a country where lots of people go to college from one that where not so many attended. Great, thanks. They always ask the professor that question. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's important uh, to remember that uh, higher education has played a part in this country pretty much from the beginning. So 30 years after the first European settlements on the East Coast, um, Harvard College was opened up. Now, it was clearly for the elite, um, but seven years after it opened up, it also they also established the first scholarship at a time when uh, there wasn't a lot of money, but um, it is our history to have started from the elite, and uh, as Stu says, it wasn't until uh, about the time of the Civil War that uh, we really began to expand higher education to non-elite groups in society. So uh, about 1862, we passed a piece of legislation that resulted in land-grant colleges in every state. Uh, in the United States, and those were specifically a means of opening up college to the middle classes, and they were to be focused in on applied and mechanic arts. So that's where we started bringing in engineering and ag agriculture and home economics. Um, the really big push that then came somewhat less than 100 years after that was the GI Bill. And, you know, that was a move, again, the federal government has often stepped in in times of economic development and need. And so with the GI Bill, first of all, the federal government wanted to stagger the entry of returning veterans into the job market. But they, what they did is they established the GI Bill, and the main provisions were to provide for paying for college or vocational training. And that opened up. There were lots of veterans representing lots of social classes in the United States. And so that opened up a lot of opportunity for students, uh, for adults, to be students who are from all social classes. Uh, the next big push really came in the 60s in Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. And uh, what we had there is uh, two acts within a year of each other, 1964 and 1965, um, where we 
boldly, where Lyndon Johnson boldly said that college should be available to students who have the ability to go, to all students who have the ability to go. And that is those acts, the uh, Opportunity Act in 1964 and the Higher uh, Higher Education Act of 1965 meant that we really opened up a mass system of higher education. We made higher education available to all kinds of students, primarily through setting the foundation for what we now have as a federal financial aid system. So everything that we now take for granted, college work study, uh, subsidized and guaranteed student loans, and uh, need-based scholarships really began as a federal initiative with those acts. They were expanded in 1982 to what, with the piece of legislation that we now, the financial aid form that we now call the Pell Grants. Uh, they weren't called that then, but uh, we opened it up. And if you, and thinking then about that backdrop, in 1965, we had, I want to get my figures exactly right, we had just under 6 million students in colleges and universities in the United States. In 2005, we had 17.5 million students in colleges and universities in the United States. So the answer to the question would be clearly, uh, it's not just for the elite. That represents a 288% increase in students going to colleges and universities. Now. I actually think a better question would be, um, are the most selective students still, of the most selective colleges and the opportunities there mostly available for the rich? But it's also the case that there's a lot of skewing of media coverage. You, you mentioned several instances of that. Well, only three students out of 100 who are in colleges and universities today are attending institutions that cost in tuition and fees alone 25000 or more dollars. And in fact, almost half of today's students in college attend colleges where the average tuition is about $2,500 because what we're talking about are the students who are attending community colleges. So there's still a lot of inequity in the system, but I'd just say, no, it's not just for the rich. Okay. Well, Scott, I'd very much like to hear your take on it, too, as an experienced higher education journalist. I'd like a sense as to if, if we could both zero in on the selective schools, uh, understood from what Pat said, that this is a small group, but uh, what kind of forces do you see in play, both opening the door and closing the door um, to the non-wealthy? Sure. I would actually reframe the question from, is higher education only for the rich, to do the rich get one kind of higher education and everyone else get another kind of higher education. And I would do that in part by disagreeing with the column that you read, which said that the best teachers are at the wealthiest institutions that serve the best students. I would argue that the uh, teachers who are most fortunate work at the best schools with the best students. Um, I recently was at the meeting of all of the, of the Association of College Composition Instructors. And Many of you probably remember a freshman year seminar where maybe you sat around a room of 20 people and learned how to write. And if you go to an elite college, you would still have that experience. If you go to many other colleges, it is common for that freshman writing course mm -hmm. to have 40 students in it. There was data released at the meeting showing that the average class size for a remedial first year writing course is larger than for a non-remedial writing course. So what that says, and here we are not talking about any of the elite colleges. 
we're talking about the colleges that most students attend. And they're getting a very different experience than that is available elsewhere. Other examples of this. If you look at what's happening with the state budget cuts, um, positions in academic advising are disappearing. Positions in career advising are disappearing. Class size is growing. Liberal arts programs are being sacrificed to more career-oriented programs. Now, I would argue that there is a role for both of those kinds of programs, but um, it used to be that you could go to a state college and develop a love of poetry or language, not just pick between becoming a business major and a computer science major. There used to be great programs. I see some disagreement in the audience, but th there used to be much more of a liberal arts tradition that was supported at a range of colleges. You also have something that's been going on in the last 10 years with faculty salaries. It used to be uh, a generation ago that faculty members at, say, a University of North Carolina Chapel Hill earned more than Duke and Berkeley earned more than Stanford. Um, that has been not, not only reversed, but hugely reversed, such that we once were a system where one of the unique things about American higher education was places like the University of California campuses and Wisconsin and Michigan had departments that ranked with the very best departments at any elite private university. And many people think that the strength of the education and the ideas that have come out of America have been strengthened by that populist tradition in some of these great departments. Now, um, a gr the great public universities are being raided by private institutions to assemble the best talent that will serve a smaller number of students. Um, we mentioned the press attention. And so the press writes a lot about traumatized um, suburban kids who can't get into the college of their choice and um, climbing walls at colleges and universities. Let me leave you with another image sort of that as part of what I see of the two cultures of higher education. We ran a column this year by a dean at a community college who described a dilemma he faces. Many of his students' health insurance uh, relates to their parents and a requirement is that he certify that they are full-time students. And he has students coming to him who acknowledge that they are not full-time students. In fact, they will register for a full slate of courses with no intention of taking all the courses so they can keep their health insurance. So when you read the stories about the climbing walls and the traumatized suburbanite, higher education right now is very different for different classes of people, and so I would frame the discussion that way. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, Bruce, is, as the um, head of admissions at a very elite school, um, I'd, like, I'd like to hear more about what you're seeing, what, 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 what kind of changing demographics you may be seeing in your applicants, uh, how their approach to getting into the college may differ, if you could address that. Sure. I'll, I'll try to keep this at a, at a higher level because uh, the efforts that we are making are certainly, I think, quite parallel to the efforts of a lot of other, I hate to even use the term, elite colleges and, and universities. Uh, because I, I think you know, there's, there's no question in our minds that there's talent everywhere and it's not limited by social class at all. And I think that uh, the, the habit that we've developed over the years is to look in many, many places. The, the reality is that our applicant pools are changing, and I think one of the great uh, 
really great events of the last you know, 15 to 20 years is the democratizing effect of the internet and information more generally. There are students who really had no clue about where to find information other than those narcolepsy-inducing guides like the Barron's Profiles of Colleges and Peterson's Guides. I mean, they would just put you into a coma t uh, to read them, uh, but have found uh, direct information from college and university departments, from current students at, at the institutions. And I, I found a, an incredible globalization in our applicant pool. When I started at Pomona College in, in 1987, our applicant pool was about 2,800. Uh, it has grown to well over 6,000 uh, this year for uh, an entering class that will be the same size. But what's really most striking uh, is that geographically they are from many, many more far-flung places and students don't feel as limited by geography as they once did. Uh, that they have taken immensely more high-end work, even in school districts that are really struggling. We're seeing students who have taken the advanced placement uh, work and international baccalaureate kind of work, really pushing themselves quite hard, uh, putting us in a position, uh, quite honestly, to forgive some of those SAT points because we can see the, the demonstrable impact of, of that, that education and training that the students are, are developing. Uh, we have, we do have uh, a, an elite group academically, and, and the SAT profiles and the class rank profiles are really quite off the ch charts at Pomona. But we also have more, well, more than half of our students receiving financial aid. We've got a situation with our 1,500 students where Pomona College is, is this year spending about 29 million dollars of money in, in financial aid. That even a full-pay student is only uh, covering about half of, of the expenses of the college, where we are doing everything we can uh, to be aware that it's not just tuition, but it's room and board. We are trying to cover health insurance for students who, who wouldn't otherwise have that available because of family situations, that it costs money to get to the institution. So, and for the students, these stressed out suburban student, you know, some of them are quite talented and quite deserving <laughs> as well. Um, but we're also mindful that they may have had advantages beyond just wealth, but it may be test preparation. It, it may be just more commonplace for those students to have had some possibilities with, with extra tutoring and extra help. Uh, and we have higher expectations, quite frankly, for, for some of those students uh, as they move along the way. If they haven't maxed out on their uh, curriculum, if they have had some lazy spots along the way, I think there's a tendency to be a little bit less forgiving and, and, and more encouraging of the lower income students. And let me just also say this, there is such a, a, a funny frame that's been put around high-end colleges and universities that, uh, that uh, one of the things I did a number of years ago is ask my counterparts at the Ivies and the Little Ivies and the, the so-called elite schools, where did you go to high school? And I think the expectation and assumption is that, oh, they must have gone to private school. They went to the Andovers and the Exeters and the St. Paul's and the, and the Thatcher schools and the Harvard Westlakes. And the reality is that not a single one of them had and that the vast, vast majority of them were from middle and lower income backgrounds themselves, went to sometimes what were considered quite awful <laughs> high schools along the way. And many of us have found this as our revenge on the experiences <laughs> that we had along the way and wanting to reach back and, and pay it forward a little bit more. Just, just a quick follow-up question for a little context. Do you have a sense of what the, uh, say, the uh, average uh, family income would be at, at your school, and how would that compare with peer schools? Uh, I do for uh, the financial aid applicants. So about half of the students are in a position uh, where their families can kick in uh, well over $40,000 uh, a year, the, the, the tuition, room, and board price. 
Um, for the other half, uh, as I said, they're, they're getting typically in the neighborhood of about $38,000 uh, of aid each. The income distribution is quite wide. There are about 20% of our students now who are coming with family incomes under $40,000. Um, now, that can be a varying size of family, of, of course. Uh, we have uh, a substantial middle class at, at, at Pomona College, and I think that a lot of the, uh, the, the most selective schools have lower-income kids, not very many middle-income kids, and then a lot of high-income kids. And ours is a flatter distribution than I think is typical. But of the aid recipients, uh, the median income, I think, is about $70,000. And that's just of the aid recipients. Yeah. And how how uh, do you think that would match up against peer institutions? Well, I think it's actually lower than it is at, at, at many of, of our peers. And the farther east you go, the uh, the more it skews to the higher end of, of the income, even for the financial aid recipients. Okay, uh, Kelly, you get uh, a, a very different kind of window into the demographics of your student body um, as a as, as president of the uh, of the board at the Los Angeles Community College District. Your institutions are, are open enrollment. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the demographics of, uh, of your students? And in fact, I'd like to maybe make this a two-part question. One, I'd like a, a census to the demographics of, uh, of community college students and to what extent it sort of uh, you know, matches uh, the, the popular notion. Also, you know, for middle-class kids, I think the, sort of the common wisdom has often been, you know, um, if you want to get a four-year degree, but, uh, but it's tough on your budget, go to community college for two years uh, and then transfer, you'll, you'll save money and still get your degree in four or five years. Um, so I guess for the second part of the question would be, I mean, the first part is who's coming into the community colleges. The second question is how successful are the community, college, uh, community colleges in moving their students on to four-year schools? Yeah, well, the, we do have a, a really uh, interesting uh, demographic. I mean, just getting to the history, the historic uh, development of, of community colleges. You know, I think that that the the fact that we have a very robust uh, community college system in California, 105 um, colleges, another 200 centers that serve those areas. I mean, th that is a, a part of history, as was mentioned, and and in any part of history is also a part of a, of a, a social uh, struggle and politics. And I don't think I don't think that that's changed. So in that in that context, the evolution of the community college system, which serves certainly in our case largely um, call them working class, you know, people from very disadvantaged economic backgrounds. Uh, just to give you some numbers of the of the magnitude, there, you know, we have two million community college students in in California. Uh, Five hundred thousand Latinos attend community colleges in California. 125,000 African Americans at the University of California system. I think it's 6,000 African Americans. Just in, in terms of our system, we we educate three times as many Latinos as the university system combined. Just in our district, nine colleges, about 130,000 full-time students. You know, 200,000 that attend. You know, part-time if you add all, all of those. We educate four, you know, three times as many uh, uh, African American students just in our district, as the University of California system. So, so if you if you if you want to look at the embodiment of that democratic uh, ethos of allowing access to educational aspiration, which is a reflection of a desire for economic aspiration, it's it's really you know the community colleges and and you know 
you know, public institutions of, of which were a, a foundation. The, it was a wonderful book that I read many years ago when I was in college called The Hidden Injuries of, of Class. And it really looked at, you know, the different ways that class frames and shapes a person's view of themselves and, a, and a, a view of themselves in terms of what they can accomplish. You know, our students come from backgrounds where they're not thinking when they're a junior and senior in, in, in college whether I should go back east to school or, or should I stay in California. They're thinking, do I, do, I, do I belong in college? Can I do this? Can I get in? Can I find my way to the college? Can I have someone take care of my kids? Can I get, a, give, get enough time off of work? Can I afford it? 90% um, of our students work. So there's, there's been a real transformation from, from when I went to community college, when I graduated from high school in 1972, where they, where they were just considered transfer institutions. It was a profound transformation in, in, in the purpose and function of community colleges. Might be the most profound transformation of higher education that's occurred in the last you know, 25, uh, 30 years. So that we became these sort of hybrid institutions. You know, transfer institutions, workforce development, and then sort of personal development, about a third, a third, and a third. So um, it's actually uh, just a fascinating uh, place to be to see, all, you know, a lot of social problems reflected in how our institution tries to manage and handle the, the, the folks that, that come to, a, to our door. You know, in terms of uh, transfer, uh, we could do a, certainly do a be better job of it. Uh, we don't we don't have the transfer rates that we, we would like to see. I think if you break it down to those who come in who say they want to transfer as opposed to those who come in and take the classes that they need to pass to transfer, it's a completely different world. You have to pass, you have to pass college level math to transfer. You have to la pass college level English to transfer. 15% uh, of our students come in able to do college level math. You know, a little bit higher college level English. At, at one college, it's, it's less than 5% who can do, one of our the colleges within our district, less than 5% that can do college level math. That's a profound uh, hurdle to, to overcome. So, so uh, you know, th there's a lot of questions about whether there's sort of a class structure within the, within the higher education system and whether we're the less prestigious, uh, you know, part of it or less uh, funded part of it. And we can, ha you know, maybe have a, a debate over that, uh, you know, later on in, in the discussion. But, but I, I think our challenges are great, but we serve a, a, pr a profound uh, sort of small d democratic function. Okay. You know, by some standards, you could say our state despite what's going on currently amid our budget meltdown and funding cutbacks has done pretty well. When you look at the list of, uh, of uh, top-rated uh, research universities in the country, um, in terms of percentage of low-income students, they admit, at, at least as measured by Pell Grants, which I know is not a perfect measure, but at least it's some kind of proxy. Well, those numbers show, um, as I recall, last time I looked, the, the three top schools in that category, again, top in terms of admitting uh, enrolling low-income students were all UC schools, uh, Berkeley, UCLA, and San Diego, and, and number four in that batch was USC. Um, I'd like to throw open the question to all of you. What is, is California doing something right, 
or is it just a function of the demographics in the state, the fact that we just have a lot of poor people here and some of them are, are lucky enough to make, it, make their way into schools? Um, any of you interested in, in chewing on that one a bit? I can start. All right, please. Um, I mean, I, I, California kids uh, are, in many cases, quite academically aggressive and are really trying to bang their way through to opportunities. There is a large immigrant population in, in California that is very, very driven towards higher education as, as an ultimate goal. Uh, it, it's, it, among some communities, it's really quite fascinating to see kids who are from very limited means, whose parents are not educated, who may have stopped at high school, if that, but they are pushed. Uh, and and this, is, uh, this is true among many uh, Asian American communities uh, and immigrant communities. This is true among increasing numbers uh, of Latino communities uh, and Central American uh, communities. Uh, and the evidence is in th how far they are pushing in terms of the, the top-level academic courses at whatever high school happens to be available to them. What's so frustrating, I certainly have many friends who teach in a variety of high schools. Uh, one friend who's teaching in what is considered one of the better LA uh, schools, and, and he has f six sections of his AP history course that the smallest class is 45. And he's, as part of that curriculum, supposed to be grading papers on a weekly basis. It's just not humanly possible. So, um, but the kids are still doing well, and, and they're, they're getting more than they're given, I, I, I think, in the, in the end. Um, I'd like to say uh, two things, I guess. One is that um, I've seen those figures, and they're in the low 30%, which to me is shocking that we're not, that the, we're not focusing in on the reverse, which is that 70% of UC, UCLA students, or some, uh, something in the high 68s, whatever the numbers are, um, aren't eligible for Pell Grants. So that says that, you know, basically six or seven out of ten students at UCLA are coming from families where they don't have significant need. They can, now we're, a, a, we don't have tuition, but we're a relatively low fee uh, institution, um, just barely over this year, $8,000 a year. Um, but we know that there are lots of other costs associated with going to college. But I, I would also say that I think that I haven't taken a deeper look at the numbers, but I would guess that um, that we share Kelly students. So when they do transfer, they're coming to our uh, often coming to UCs, and so many of our juniors and seniors are transfer students, and they're also representing probably many of those students who are on um, getting Pell grants and Pell grant eligible. I just wish the numbers were we were doing a better job of of uh, having. Pell eligible and Pell grant recipient students um, in the population at UCs. As, um, as the non-Californian on this panel, I would say that partly you should congratulate yourselves that the popularity of the UC campuses and their success <coughs> reflects decades of a shared commitment in the state to supporting it. A UC system doesn't happen by accident. Um, it happens because people think higher education is important over generations. And there are specific policy choices people make. 
Now, it take University of California, there's a lot of concern about getting in, and people worry about whether they get in. One of the biggest trends in state higher education policy over the last 15 years has been a proliferation of merit aid scholarships, where many states now say, if you have over a certain GPA, you get a free ride to the public university of your choice, regardless of family income or at very high family income levels. So what has happened in many states in this period that we talk about access is that the flagship public universities have become known as places where people arrive with fancy cars that their parents gave them for going public with the you know and so you have a reverse of the demographics uh, that many people would say we should have so even if um, you see perhaps should have more um, you might give yourselves a collective uh, pat on the back for not doing what many other states have done, which has been to accentuate the advantage of the wealthy. And one thing I would add to that is that merit aid actually is a huge, I, I think is a huge problem, um, because we have really shifted off of need-based aid. Now, need-based aid has been growing over this period of time that we've had the merit aid program. But the balance between merit aid and need aid, we're giving more and more dollars that should be going into need-based aid, and we're giving them, them in merit aid scholarships to students who are already going to be going to college and who don't need it in the same way that the students, who it would make a difference of what going to college or not. Pat, would, so, it be, would it be fair to say that money's basically being used to sort of buy one student away from one, from one school to another? Is yeah. there any higher purpose? Than mo mo most states have gone this route because they want to keep talent in-state and they want to get a portion of the best and the brightest. And on principle, that's not a, it's not a bad thing to say we want to spend state dollars on our own citizens. And we want them to stay in this state so that we, as a state, can capture the benefit of their higher education and what they will contribute to the economy. That's not a bad goal. But what we haven't done is we haven't, the, the, those measures are popular with voters because most of the voters are middle class. And so it, it serves the middle class. It's not advancing access for populations who are historically disenfranchised. And it's not increasing access for students who have much greater need. And, and actually, this is also significant, it also doesn't necessarily work at right. keeping the students over the long run. Students will respond to a scholarship and go to a state university they might have otherwise turned down. But when they graduate, they go where there are good jobs. And that's why probably many of you went to college in other states, mm -hmm. and you were attracted here for a reason. So if there are not good jobs, the generous scholarships don't keep the talent. There's another part, part of it on the, the private side, and there are many private colleges and universities, I'm happy to say that we're not among them at, at Pomona College, that use it uh, for budgetary purposes. Uh, and this is a somewhat arcane argument to make, but fundamentally the colleges will say, if we give this merit scholarship to a student, uh, we'll give them $5,000, but they'll still be bringing 25000 to us we're going to come out ahead budgetarily compared to giving a student $25,000 based upon need. Mm -hmm. It may improve an academic profile or it may be perceived to improve that profile, but it also means that 
there's another space just not available to that lower income student. And I, I watch with some distress as I see more and more colleges tipping in, in that direction. And I think it's going to be particularly interesting and, and maybe troubling to see what will play out this year in a time of real economic crunch as colleges and universities are finding themselves under terrible budgetary uh, pressure for the same reason we all are. Kelly, was there, you were looking this no, way. Just, we, just, a, just an observation that, that again, with, with our, our students, um, there's a, for many of them, certain uh, groups of our students, there's a real reluctance to even apply for financial aid, you know, for, and we're trying to figure out whatever whatever reason we've done we've done a better job of actually reaching out to them. But the sort of surround services um, that might be more prevalent at, at a, you know a state university or, or a university of, of California system, we simply don't have. I mean, we have we have one counselor for every uh, thirteen uh, uh, thirteen hundred students, and mm -hmm. in, in, in the and. So you can imagine, you know, and there's, there's just a, re a reluctance to fill out the papers. You know, they're not sure. A lot of, a lot of people don't, from certain communities, don't want to be involved with the, the authorities, not sure what this means, what am I obligated. So, so just basic uh, education and understanding about, about financial aid is, is another hurdle that we, we have to uh, overcome. I mean, you know, I'm happy that Barack has, uh, you know, increased the amount of the, the Pell Grant and has changed some of the some of the ways that they're calculated to benefit, you know, the, the, the very uh, students that we have in, in our district. But uh, there, there's, there's other issues that go way, way beyond that, I think. You, you raise a point that's uh, often puzzled me. Uh, this is a state where low-income kids can have their tu tuition completely waived uh, for community college. And it seems like it's a fairly high number. I guess we were saying in, in Los Angeles about 50% of all students pay no tuition and statewide it's something like a little over a quarter. Mm -hmm. So somehow students manage to apply for that waiver and get it, and yet so few of them who are eligible for financial aid get it. Is it, what, what explains that? Is it that it's just simply a more complicated process to, uh, to go through the financial aid process when you're in college? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's much, more, much more complicated for you know, the federal, federal loan process. But, um, and and I think that the, what they call the BOG waiver, the Board of Go Governors waiver, uh, again applies to over 50% of our students. But even those some who qualify don't even uh, apply for that. So, but I think it is it is much easier. It's almost it's you know they learn from their fellow students that fill out this paper. You know it's a simple form. You can you can have your uh, fees waived. Okay. Uh, can I uh, respond to that a little Please. bit? Um, you know the other thing that's going on is first of all it would be. Um, more enjoyable to have a root canal for every day for a month mm -hmm. than to fill out the financial aid forms. And, um, and there's virtually, I mean, I'm actually horrified to hear that there are 1,300 students to counselor at the community colleges because it makes the high school ratio of 994 students to one counselor look good. <laughs> now, you know, it's really a pretty bad situation when we are the worst state in the country in terms of high school counseling, and apparently we may be in line for that honor um, at the community college level too. But I think that what happens with students is that these are very difficult, the FAFSA form, not the Board of Governors, but the FAFSA form um, for the federal government is enormously difficult to fill out. It takes a tremendous amount of paperwork. It takes, it strains family relationships. Kids have to talk to their parents about things that are parents consider to be private matters. They have to disclose. There's an awkwardness about it. 
But, you know, honestly, there's another whole issue playing in here, which is word on the street. And so I think that financial aid officers in general don't have the best reputation because we, the, have you ever, ever tried to read a financial aid award letter? Um, it's not clear when you get to the end of the page how much money you're actually getting. Um, but the word on the street is that, you know, you, you may or may not get uh, financial aid. You're absolutely likely to get a category called unmet need, which means we know it's going to cost you $13,000 and we're giving you $8,000. <laughs> and you've got $5,000 of unmet need, which means that's the prize where we say best of luck. That, that's the tough to be somehow, that, right? That's the tough. And yeah. the thing is, is that word on the street carries much more credibility. People trust their neighbors. They trust their friends. They trust stories that they read that say middle class students don't get any aid or people like us don't get any aid. And we're up against that. And I think that we don't do a good enough job. There aren't trained counselors um, at the high school level. Even when those counselors are there, they, know, they have no training in financial aid processes. Our letters are readable, uh, <laughs> right, right down to the last decimal, for exactly that reason. And, and, and we actually have people who spend a lot of time in the schools and working with families to make sure of that. But it is certainly not universal, and I'm glad to be at a place where there's no such category of unmet need. Uh, but these forms are just horrendous to go through. I, I completely agree. And not only the federal forms, but the College Scholarship Service uh, has an additional very long form. Uh, to manage to get through. I've got some graduate degrees and I find myself choking uh, as I move through these forms every now and then just to remind myself of the torture. The College Board actually has both created a problem and tried to solve a problem simultaneously. It's something they managed to muck mm -hmm. up pretty well. Uh, if I can talk about some of my colleagues there, they spent about three years with a low-income task force that met apparently somewhat regularly and it took more than that time to define low-income. Now, it was a very large group of bureaucrats who were involved in this, and some very well-intentioned people, but folks who weren't going into schools, spending time with families, but who pushed a lot of paper at, at state and, and federal level. Uh, and it was just mind-boggling that it would take so long, because it is a perception. It is an experience. It's, it's how people see themselves. It isn't always defined strictly and purely by where that decimal point uh, may fall. And I think that there are some good efforts now going on to rethink and reimagine how to get this information, even to the possibility of using federal tax filings that, that, that families make. And perhaps as early as the time your son or daughter would be in ninth grade, find out about what you should be expected to spend. That would make a very big difference long in advance for planning, because right now the system is such that uh, in April, people will find out what they're expected to pay for the first payment by J July or, or August. And that's a frighteningly narrow time frame. And a lot of people don't apply because they think they're going to get shafted. Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of undocumented kids don't apply because they're convinced they're going to find themselves dealing with federal authorities. And that's just unfortunate and not true. Okay, we will now open it up to Q&A portion of our discussion tonight. We want to remind you that this is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts, so we ask that all questions be asked into the microphone, and if you could please state your first and last name before your question, we'd like to give a sense of community. Also, at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, and we do appreciate any and all of your support. Thank you. Do we have any questions? Hi, um, my name is David Trilling. 
And um, I, I was wondering, you, you, all of you mentioned all sorts of problems. Um, I was hoping that, I mean, other than obviously less financial aid just based on merit, um, but other than that, what other maybe major solutions would you suggest to make things a little bit more equitable? Some of the solutions as opposed to what, what some of the problems are. Sure. Um, uh, Pat, were you interested in, in that? Yeah. Um, you know, on my own personal wish list, uh, what I would want is uh, better K-12 academic preparation. Um, so if you look at the disparities, we've had for about the last 40 or 50 years the same gap between poor and rich, between white and underrepresented minorities in terms of going to college. So we've increased the numbers, but the gap has remained the same. And the number one, the, the two equal first barriers are affordability and academic preparation. And so we started off talking about the fortunate teachers who are at those schools where the students are well prepared and there are lots of resources in the school. But large numbers of poor and African American and Latino and Native American students are at schools that have large numbers of un- or underqualified teachers who have little or no counselors available to them, who uh, exist in schools where they don't have the same kind of course-taking patterns uh, available to them so that many of the college uh, courses that they would need for college in general, it, it gets to Kelly's point about the underpreparedness of students. Those are students who don't have the opportunity to go to other schools. And so in some way, that's their only choice. And those are the schools that they are then stuck with. And I'm not trashing the, the dedicated teachers and the people who are really trying to make those schools better. Uh, but we really do need to, uh, to improve K-12 education if we want um, community colleges and four-year institutions to be able to better serve students. In case you couldn't guess from earlier, I would like for us to make more counselors available uh, to students um, and counselors who are taken off of yard duty and, and other duties and actually are available to students so that they can help them prepare all along the way for college and then advise them about the kinds of opportunities they might have. And I'd love for us to get better about the affordability issue. To, to build on the counselor theme, um, you might look at programs that involve more intervention with low-income students. One of the real tragedies here, and I think it's something Kelly alluded to, is that there are large numbers of low-income students who could be admitted to community colleges and who could afford it either with their own resources because it's low cost or with aid and don't know it. Um, we wrote about a high school outside of Austin, Texas with a very disadvantaged, uh, low-income uh, demographic. And what the high school did is they forced every senior to apply to one college and to apply for financial aid. And they worked with the students to do this. They couldn't make the students enroll, but they could make them fill out the application. And big surprise, three times the number of students went to college. Their academic preparation didn't change. Their finances didn't change. The reality was they had places they could get into and could afford. No one sat down with them. If you come from you know, a, a, either a family of means or go to a school of means, People don't let you not apply to college. Um, what people don't realize is there is a huge portion of the population that just doesn't get that. 
A couple, yeah, a couple of uh, things. I mean, I don't want to be totally negative here. I mean, we, we've managed to actually keep uh, community college education fairly inexpensive here in California, $20 a unit. I think the average nationwide is, you know, 120 you know, maybe, maybe even higher. But um, one of the things I'm interested in is, is uh, different ways of, of, of learning and this concept of, of cohorts. Of, of particularly, I think it's particularly effective with the students that come from the backgrounds that our, our students come from, where you get the sense that they're sort of thrown into the into the, the college. Someone says, "This is how you get to Pierce College or East LA. Good luck." And and uh, you know they sit in the parking lot. I mean, this is not just a story. They sit in the parking lot and and cry before they can get out of their car to go, you know, into the, into the admissions office and stand in line and fill out the papers and apply for financial aid because they're so nervous. And, but this idea of cohorts, of people going through classes together and helping each other and, and you know, and, and getting services together. We're, we're doing this with uh, the Service Employees International Union where we're moving people together as a group. They support each other. Someone knows about childcare. Someone can give someone a ride. So, you know, it's basic stuff like that that me, you know that can mean the difference between someone succeeding and someone not succeeding. And I think the you know, empirical evidence shows that to the extent that you can do that, <coughs> move people together, create a sense of bonding and, and solidarity among the students, helping each other, provide some wraparound services that are, are very very important that that you're going to in, increase uh, success. So I'm very interested in that as a, a positive uh, model. Very good. Um, I'd like to get to some of the other questions. That's okay. Okay, why don't, why don't we go to another question? Yeah, we have a question here in the back on to your left. And could you stand, please, sir? Uh, my name is Louis South. I'm an elementary school counselor in LAUSD and in an area that is impacted, uh, challenging to the people living there economically. Um, I have a program that is an after-school program called College and Beyond, and the focus is college, and really primary to that is uh, career. <laughs> All right, you gotta decide on your career to kind of figure out what college you wanna go to and what, what your major is. So anyway, uh, the process starts, it has to, and I've been doing this for four years now. Uh, each year we go to visit a college campus, uh, Loyola Marymount is really where I started with it. Um, uh, last year was City College, the Trade Tech, Trade Tech uh, College, and this year um, Marymount College, which is up in uh, Rancho Palos Verdes. Um, so it's, it's all very interesting to see that the children who go through this, if the, the running of such a program is about instilling uh, values concerning hard work, <laughs> uh, that uh, instant gratification is, you know, you have to kind of work down these barriers. Question to you is, do, do you, and I've heard some touch upon, uh, some general statements saying K through 12 education is, is important. Uh, what I'm not hearing enough of is the idea that it's really from the elementary level. If you're really serious about getting those populations, especially that have traditionally not been going to colleges or entered and didn't, didn't succeed in passing through, if you really want to reach them and increase those numbers, the most serious thing you can do is to start from elementary school to instill the values that create the kinds of uh, tendencies students need to have to be able to make it. I'd like to hear something on that. 
Sure. Would any of you like to add some yeah. uh, uh, context uh, to, to that, uh, Kelly? Yeah, just, just uh, I think you're, you're really uh, correct about that. In fact, you know, the Santa Ana uh, School District has done, in partnership with, this, with the community college district there, is bringing, you know, college uh, faculty, counselors, recruiters into the, as far down as the middle schools. You know, most people in Los Angeles don't don't know this, but over the past several months, we've we've had two joint meetings, our community college district and the board of the LA Unified uh, School District, to hammer out a partnership where we're, we're doing, we're going to ex expand exponentially, the number of classes that we're offering to high school students, the amount of um, information we're providing to middle school students to start them at that young age thinking about college, that it's not for somebody else, it's, it's for you. And we have 27,000 students right now that, that take concurrent classes, uh, high school classes and college classes at the same time, either in a junior year or, or senior year. We want to ex expand that dramatically. Uh, at our middle school, which is on one of our, our campuses, Southwest, there's a high percentage of those students that graduate from high school with an AA degree at the same time. They're right on our campus. They take college classes. They graduate as a senior from, from high school. They've got an AA degree already. They transfer, they transfer into a four-year school as a junior. I mean, so there's a lot of positive stuff that, that, that we can do. I mean, obviously, it's a function of resources and so on. But uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, if, if I could add two things. You're talking about aspiration, which is hugely important. There's a lot of data showing that sixth graders can predict with a high degree of accuracy, if you ask them, will you go to college, the answer they give you will prove to be true. So on the aspiration level, they know. But I also wouldn't underestimate the skills and learning impact. Um, math, college-level math, is the huge roadblock to success for many disadvantaged students. And many, many, at many community colleges, the top enrolled course is remedial math. And it's not remedial math like 12th grade math. It's many times remedial math algebra back at Algebra 1. And it doesn't matter how inspired a freshman is about becoming a biologist or doctor, they can't do it. And then go back further. Um, to get on the track to not need remedial math, um, you need to say, what is the math course and what, how seriously is math taken in that sixth grade class, in that fourth grade class? So many of these students are basically denied opportunity to be a late starter. So uh, you're absolutely right. And, and I'd like to add to that a little bit. It's, it's not just values and aspiration. It's also a dream. And dreams need to be nurtured and taken care of. And I applaud you for doing that because, um, you know, at some, at some point in every school, in every academic year, you know, you hit a patch where you're having difficulty learning how to read, where you can't get that year's math curriculum, where you're having some kind of academic or social difficulty and you lose faith in yourself. And you need to be supported in that dream. But the other thing I would say to this is nobody gets to college by themselves. And it's just as important when you're doing those trips, and, and I'm sure you've already thought about this, but for those of you who haven't, the parents need to go on those trips. Many, you know, I used to, years ago, run an Upward Bound program at Stanford University, and the students and the parents knew Stanford University as either the hospital where they were born or the shopping mall 
that they used to go to. They had no idea there was a university there. <laughs> People need to be able to physically go to a place that is so foreign to them to see it and begin to imagine themselves there, and their parents need to be able to say, okay, I can see my child here. They could be safe. This could work out. Hi, I'm Julie Wise, and I'm a professor at CSU Long Beach. And I'm just wondering if any of you could comment on what a political solution might be to the sort of downward slide that we seem to be seeing in our public education system. I sort of have the sense that we have an amazing public education system, all three parts of it, but there's this sense of teetering on the edge of both um, less opportunity, higher tuition for students, lower quality, all the things we've been discussing. And then I feel like, well, but the state has so many alums, so many alums in the legislature, so many high school students aspiring to go to these schools. Why is, it seems like there should be a natural political constituency to stop this, this direction that the system is headed in, or systems, and yet they still seem to be headed that way. So I'm just wondering if any of you could comment on the political solutions possibly for that. At, at the risk, of, I moved here from the East Coast, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the crazy risk because I wasn't here at the time that it went down. Overturn Prop 13. I mean, it's really that fundamental. Um, I, I was looking at Kelly because he's the political person here, but, but I, will, I will say that, um, you know, part of it is, I would say it's in the broader economic climate that we're in now. You actually have to pay for things. Um, and we need to reinvest. Six out of ten jobs in the future require some level of college education. And so we just, you know, each of us thinks as taxpayers, but we need to think as a taxpayer, I don't want to have a crumbling infrastructure around me. I want a vital economy. I want, I need to, I may not like to pay my taxes, but I know they're important. I know that I, I come from the East and I wouldn't have, I went to a public institution and I depended upon that as the only means of getting to college. And so it's, it's uh, paying it forward or backwards, I'm not sure which. <laughs> Uh, hi there, my name is Nestor, and I'm actually a current student at one of the colleges for LACC, actually. Um, and I had a question over, I, I spoke with a, a colleague, uh, Wilson Woodrow, who did a partnership with, uh, over at the Community College of uh, Mission, I believe that's the one, uh, where they brought in like new green technology and helped students get involved into that and actually did internships with them and helped them out. and redevelop the landscape and all that. I was just wondering, um, since I'm in a community college myself, and like, since there is a huge like number of community colleges, not only in LACC district, but also Santa Monica College and Pasadena College, we have partnerships with UCLA and uh, Caltech. I was wondering why LACC district doesn't have any special partnership with any of the colleges, uh, like sharing uh, teachers or having like instruction um, to help you know these students who are transferring to these other universities that you want to go but it seems like there is somewhat of a disconnect when it comes to at least within the LA district that there's not that bridge as opposed to Santa Monica College which has like uh, <coughs> professors and teachers from UCLA coming here and there teaching the same kind of courses at the community college mm -hmm. while LACC well, we have a, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of, a, a number of, uh, I mean, I couldn't tell you the exact numbers, but a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, particularly Cal State faculty teachers that do teach part-time on our 
you know, in our in our system. But the I think the 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 broader point is, I mean, when you mentioned the clean tech and the and the um, you know sustainability uh, programs, if there is a critique of sort of the, the class structure of the educational system with the community colleges kind of in the low status, uh, low prestige uh, end of it. You know, part of it is related to the fact that, that high, you know, high, and I'll use, I'll throw terms around here that you can, we can define if we want, but, high, you know, high prestige universities attempt and, and, and many successfully attach themselves to, to high status occupation training markets. Why, why does UCLA want to have a hospital there? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very high prestige si situation. To the extent that we can, uh, you know, engineering schools, law schools, w whatever, community colleges generally don't, don't have that, that type of uh, cloud and, and resources. In our district, we're looking at a different approach, and that's, you know, can we, can we partner with the city on a, on a sort of su sustainability program that is citywide that provides our students access into some of these, you know, higher status, you know, uh, high-paid occupations. That's what we're dealing with. We're, we're land rich now in the sense that we pass three, three bonds of $6 billion and we own a lot of real estate. And, and, uh, and we're trying to um, structure programs that are going to meet, you know, the, those, those new jobs of the future, particularly in the green, in the green uh, uh, sector. We're, we're doing a whole reevaluation re of our curriculum and, and adding uh, uh, Sustainability and, and green job development into into uh, every one of our, our colleges. We're going to be off the electrical grid within a year because we, you know we put up solar panels on on every one of our uh, every one of our colleges. You know that's a, that's a, a big uh, a big move. Um, in terms of the in terms of the other stuff, maybe we could we could talk about it uh, later about specific you know places where we, we have relationships with the, particularly the state state colleges. We have a question all the way to the back here to your left. Please. It's down, please. Hi, good evening. Yeah, I'm one of the, my name is Lisa Kane, and I'm one of the privileged adjuncts that teach in the Jumpstart program uh, for the Los Angeles Community College. And I just always thought it would be kind of neat if you guys gave us some kind of incentive. And I know budgetary constraints, maybe not monetary, but maybe like flex hours or something, and we could help counsel some of the high school students and even some of our students in the general first level classes rather than us running around trying to figure out how to do flex hours. I know like I'll take my students over to Doheny at USC so they can learn how to research and use stacks and then get over some of these things that you talk about they're petrified to go to a, a college. And if you could just maybe give more incentives to us as adjunct we'd be more than happy to help you counsel and maybe bring down that 1,300 to 1 uh, figure you have. Excuse me. Sorry. Before, before you answer, I forgot to mention, this was going to be the last question. We've run out of time. Um, uh, we do invite you to please join us at our reception. It's going to be just outside in the lobby for food and drinks where our panelists will be joining us. So if you have remaining questions, you can further speak with our panelists on this topic tonight. Thank you. Is that it, or do, is that? I think you can oh. answer. <laughs> um, good idea. I mean, that's that's all. That's all I can say. And I, I would be happy to. I mean, it's going to sound like a uh, kind of a political response, but I'll be happy to look into it. How's that for a political response? <laughs> but but, um, but actually, there's a much broader issue than LACCD and adjuncts, which is that adjuncts are increasingly who are teaching 
at institutions that serve low-income and disadvantaged students. And, and your, what your question points to is that if, a, if an adjunct professor doesn't have an office, if an adjunct, we, we, we've been writing this year about adjuncts who teach seven, seven loads. That means seven courses a semester and they don't have health insurance. Now, how can, the, you know, they're not going to be able to provide the kinds of counseling that she would like to provide. And, and it, a lot of this relates to resources. To go back to, to your point, um, colleges like adjunct, and now many adjuncts are incredibly devoted teachers because they're certainly not doing it to get rich, and they care a lot. But colleges go to them not because of their devotion to teaching, but because they are flexible and because they are less expensive. And so there is a relationship between the wealth of institutions and the way they use slash abuse adjunct professors. And this relates to, through no fault of the adjuncts, to all kinds of questions about the experience that students have. People might ask questions of their colleges when you're, when you're looking for yourself or for uh, a child, what's the percentage of adjuncts here? Um, do adjuncts ever get uh, on the tenure track here? Um, people don't think of that as a question to ask, but it matters a lot. There, there, it goes to the co cohort point that you made a few moments ago. I mean, if faculty are disconnected, it, it creates some additional problems of community for the students to connect to, to the faculty as well. Uh, so it, it is a resource question, and, it, and it's not just a monetary resource. It's an, it's an intellectual resource question that really does affect things like graduation rates. And as people focus a great deal on what is your admission ratio, what they ought to be looking at is what is the graduation rate, and what does that tell you about the experience overall? Uh, thank you, all of you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you.